Welcome to Musings on History. Episode 4.7, Socialism Part 2. Welcome back, musers. This episode is the second of what I thought would be a two-part series on socialism, but y'all, it's just too much information for like one episode, too much ground to cover. So today's episode is going to be about the history of socialism in Europe. And the next and final episode will focus on Asia, Russia, Oceania, and the Middle East. Now, since I have a lot of ground to cover, without further ado, let's get into it. Socialism in Europe. So socialism in Europe has its roots in the French Revolution. That's not to say that the French Revolution was a socialist revolution. It was most decidedly a bourgeois revolution, meaning it benefited the property class and did not explicitly revolve around worker-owned and led means of production, or the shared ownership of public uh, lands. The bourgeois revolution, uh, the bourgeois in France already owned the means of production in the Ancien Regime, but they wanted certain political freedoms that an autocratic monarchy could not or would not offer them. But the French Revolution of the 18th century spawned several political and social movements, both within France and throughout Europe in the 19th century with a large number of them occurring in the year 1848, now known to history as the Spring of Nations. So they haven't gotten very creative with the naming in all these decades and centuries. The countries included in the Spring of Nations included the Kingdom of Italy, the Swiss Confederation, and the German Confederation, which was at the time led by the autocratic Hohenzollerns of Prussia. In his revolution and counter-revolution in Germany, Marx described the events that led to the German Revolution of 1848 and why it ultimately failed, stating, But such a determined course was not to be expected from the representatives of German shopocracy. These aspiring statesmen were not at all freed from their illusions. Those members who had lost their fatal belief in the strength and inviolability of the parliament had already taken to their heels. The Democrats who remained were not so easily induced to give up dreams of power and greatness, which they had cherished for a 12-month. True to the course they had hitherto pursued, they shrank back from decisive action until every chance of success, nay, every chance to succumb with at least the honors of war had passed away. In order then to develop a fictitious busybody sort of activity, the sheer impotency of which, coupled with its hypertension, could not but excite pity and ridicule, they continued insinuating resolutions, addresses, and requests to an imperial lieutenant who not even noticed them, to ministers who were in open league with the enemy. And when at last William Wolfe, member for Striegen, one of the editors of the New Rhenish Gazette, the only really revolutionary man in the whole assembly, told them that if they meant what they said, they had better give over talking and declare the imperial lieutenant, the chief traitor to the country, an outlaw at once. 
then the entire compressed virtuous indignation of these parliamentary gentlemen burst out with an energy which they never found when the government heaped insult after insult upon them. So, girl, Marx, he was reading for points. Basically, the peasants of the German states started a revolt for more political and economic freedoms, including freedom of assembly, a vote in the assembly, and fairer wages, and also labor laws. And the small but burgeoning middle-class Yunkers initially joined them, then betrayed them in favor of economic freedoms in exchange for no political freedoms. This development is called Sonderweg, which is a historiographical theory that German-speaking society has developed from autocracy and aristocracy to democracy in a different progression than the rest of Europe. Marx and Engels were disappointed that the liberal Democrats abandoned the cause of political freedom in exchange for a slice of the economic pie, and this made a deep impression on Marx, who had initially agreed with the French utopian socialists that mutual understanding could be achieved amongst all the non-aristocratic classes. It was after the defeat of the working classes in the German Revolution of 1848 that Marx expanded his theories on class conflict. After the failure of most of the revolutions of 1848, things in Europe quieted down for a few decades until a string of bad harvests in the 1860s and 70s caused grain prices to soar. Bad harvests were only second to plague outbreaks and how quickly they could inspire civil unrest. The Paris Commune was a radical movement that led Paris in the spring of 1871 after France's defeat in the Franco-Prussian War led to the capture of Emperor Napoleon III. This led to the end of the Second Empire and the beginning of the Third Republic. At the time, France was politically split between the rural Catholic and conservative countryside and the fast industrializing radical cities like Paris, Lyon, and Marseille. The workers in the cities wanted a democratic republic with universal suffrage, and the people in the countryside wanted a return of the emperor. Both sides were deeply frustrated with the concessions the provisional government made with the Germans to end the Franco-Prussian War. Movements like the International Working Men's Association, known to history as the First International, who Uh, a consortium of socialist thinkers and theorists who had substantial numbers of German, Italian, and Russian political exiles. It was started in London in 1864, but it had long been in Paris, both as a hideout from their governments and as a testing ground for their socialist policies. They had been radicalizing and organizing the workers to agitate not only for more economic rights, but political rights as well. While the Paris Commune was not successful long-term, the First International was briefly successful in uniting disparate leftists like Proudhon, Blanqui, Bakunin, and Marx. The anarcho-communists like Enrico Malatesta were also briefly part of the First International. So I'm going to try and briefly summarize the many groups that made up the First International. So first you have the Proudhonists, followers of Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who was the first to call himself an anarchist and is generally regarded as the father of anarchism. Proudhon espoused a mutualist philosophy and was as critical of socialist hierarchies in principle as he was capitalism in practice. It was Proudhon, not Marx, who declared property is theft. He also, in the same sentence, said property is freedom, and by that he meant that the tools of one's trade 
that enables you to make a living are your property and thus your freedom. Proudhon did not approve of state socialism or the ownership of labor or property by the state. Proudhon envisioned a society of communes where workers would trade their labor or their goods in kind and factories would be run by labor associations that were worker-organized. He was a proponent of political decentralization, that is, government organized at the very low level with a very flat or non-existent hierarchy and rotating terms of leadership instead of a vanguard political class. Next to the Blancis, followers of Louis-Auguste Blanqui. Blanqui identified as a socialist in that he espoused a just redistribution of wealth, but unlike Marx, he didn't believe in mask worker-led movements. He felt that a socialist revolution should be carried out by a highly organized and secret vanguard who would use the existing state to carry out socialist programs. Once these vanguards amassed enough power, they would organize a putsch or coup d'etat to overthrow the state. Blanqui was more interested in the means of revolt than he was in the way society would be organized after a revolution was achieved. He felt that the revolution itself was its own means. Then you have the followers of Mikhail Bakunin, who was a Russian immigrant revolutionary anarchist. His beef with Marx would lead to the breakup of the First International as he was opposed to the dictatorship of the proletariat and predicted that it would lead to one-party dictatorships over the proletariat, not necessarily by the proletariat. Bakunin was also an anti-theologist who rejected Proudhon's mutualist aspirations as overly moralistic. And then finally, I'm skipping over the Italian anarchists since most of them were either in Proudhon or Bakunin's camp. You have the Marxists. Karl Marx was a German philosopher, economist, and political theorist whose famous Communist Manifesto was written with his best friend and frequent collaborator Friedrich Engels in 1848 the year of the failed German revolution that started Marx's theories on class conflict. Marx, who was a member of the Young Hegelians as a university student, was influenced by Hegel to develop a philosophy on science and nature called dialectical materialism. Dialectical materialism differs from Hegelian materialism because it emphasizes the importance of one's real-world conditions and how they perceive the world and in how world events unfold. Hegelian materialism focuses more on the human experience shaping the mind's perception of history, but Marx and his followers argued that material conditions such as one's socioeconomic status and religious upbringing, as well as the political climate they live in, would shape their experience and thus their perception. In a way, dialectical materialism is like the final boss in the linear progression of Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Plato surmised that a lack of education could shape a person's nature. Hegel took it a step further and surmised that one's experience would shape how they perceive the world. And Marx surmised that your material conditions would have the most profound effect on both your nature, that is your character, and how you perceive the world. After the breakup of the First International, the Second International was formed in Paris in 1889 on the centennial of the French Revolution of 1789. The anarchists were excluded from attending, and Marx remarked that there was now a single generally recognized, crystal clear theory of Marx, and a single great international army of socialists. 
In Germany, the SPD, or Social Democratic Party of Germany, challenged the anti-socialist laws of 1878 and succeeded in having them repealed in 1890. In France, the Federation of the Socialist Workers of France and the French Workers' Party merged to form the Section Française de l the French Section of International Workers, which started as a Marxist party, but became a reformist party after gaining 56 seats in the French parliament and more than 100 in the Chamber of Deputies. The anarchists weren't done yet, though. In 1907, the International Anarchist Congress of Amsterdam, oh, these long-ass names, gathered delegates from 14 countries, including the aforementioned Enrico Malatesta of Italy, Emma Goldman of the United States, who was rumored to have, like, encouraged the anarchist who assassinated, uh, what was that guy's name? McKinley. Good job, Emma. Rudolf Rocker of Germany and Christian Corneliusen of the Netherlands. One of the central debates was on the differences between anarchism, eh, anarchism and trade unionism, which are like collective bargaining units of workers. The Federación Obrera Regional Española, Workers' Federation of the Spanish Region, was started in 1881 in Spain and was the largest trade union in the country until 1901. The Confederación Nacional de Trabajo was founded in 1910 and had 1.8 million members at its peak before the Spanish Civil War. The anarchists fought alongside the Republicans and Communists against the fascist phalangists, monarchists, and Catholics in the Spanish Civil War. The rise of fascism in Europe in the 1930s and World War II in the 1940s saw the SPD and Communist parties of Germany forced out of power by the Nazis, the anarchists joining guerrilla groups against the fascists in Italy and Spain, and the Bolsheviks take power and begin a rapid industrialization campaign to fight the Nazis as well. Post-World War II, democratic socialism broke from communism and socialist policies like universal health care began to be implemented across Europe. In the United Kingdom, Harold Wilson, a socialist from the Labour Party, was elected prime minister in 1964 and considered himself a soft leftist, preferring programs designed to increase opportunity in society indirectly rather than the more socialist means of wider public ownership, and worker-owned cooperatives. Social democracy took an even firmer hold in Scandinavia, where it's now referred to as the Nordic model. The Nordic model is a series of social and economic policies that promote a comprehensive welfare state and multi-level collective bargaining. Under the Nordic model, high percentages of the workforce are unionized and trades are centralized and run through guilds and large numbers of the population are employed by the government. Next episode, I promise you guys, I will be finishing up the series as God is my witness. Join me next time for more Musings on History.